I was reminded when I first came to Cambodia, uh, that was some 20 plus years ago, one of the projects that we did was a water filtration project. Anybody been, ever been involved in helping with clean water? Awesome, isn't it? Um, I have to say my experience was, it was one of the more rewarding and probably frustrating experiences that I've ever been involved with. Uh, rewarding in the sense of it's very practical. We had these um, really cool water filtration systems that were super simple. Uh, there was three layers, rock, uh, gravel and sand, you could put any kind of water into that uh, filter system and out the bottom would come pure, clean, good water. Uh, but one of the things that we did, we would always follow up uh, and find out, okay, so this, this water filter was given to someone uh, or a community, and what do you think happens sometimes? I won't tell you what the percentage was because we kept, we kept statistics, but what normally happened to that water filter? It never stopped working, it stopped being used, right? And because it, it was a great, very large paperweight that usually uh, ended up in the corner of a room. Um, and I'm not being critical of people who had the opportunity to use that as much as um, sometimes as Christians, as followers of Christ, um, God has given us everything that we need, okay? And uh, if you're familiar with the navigators, uh, they like to use the hand, right? And so anybody remember what the hand is? It's, it's, it's about the Word of God, okay? So this is kind of like our spiritual filter. We read the Word, we study the Word, we memorize the Word, we meditate on the Word. And then I fudged on the last one because I, I, the fifth one to me is apply the Word to our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's sort of our, our filtering system, Okay? And as we work through the book of Hebrews, you might be, we might be tempted to take sort of the details that really don't hit us in the sweet spot and sort of set them aside into the corner and more or less use them as a big, heavy paperweight. Okay? And I just want to gently encourage all of us that... God has given us his word to read, to study, to memorize, to meditate so that as it filters through our mind and it gets down into our heart and our life, we'll apply it in the right way. That's all about the book of Hebrews, okay? And so uh, that's, that's sort of my uh, vivid illustration of life here in Cambodia and Working through the book of Hebrews, we're going to look at the second half of Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, you remember that we're studying this book. The title that I've given it is The Glory of Christ, Our Hope, and what? Comfort. That's right. It's our comfort. We don't want to miss out on the gospel. Religion doesn't bring hope and doesn't bring comfort. The do's and don'ts of any system. For the author of Hebrews, he's writing to Jews, most of them coming out of a Jewish system of the Old Testament. They found a measure of comfort and even hope, both of which were false, in that system, in the law. And he's saying there is no hope, there is no comfort apart from Christ. And we've worked through sort of systematically for the last few months saying that Christ is superior to the angels. In Hebrews chapter 1, you remember that? To the prophets. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the priesthood. That's what we're in right now. 
And I reminded you last week, some of you might not have been here, but um, if you want to like sort of capture what it means for Jesus to be superior, it's from this quote from Abraham Kuyper that says, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, what? Mine. And so the author is saying to his readers, to his listeners in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is awesome. In fact, he's so awesome that he is sovereign, he is king over everything. There is nothing that takes place in your life, there is nothing that takes place in my life where he doesn't have his finger on saying, this belongs to me. That can be sobering because we like our stuff. We like our life. We like to make plans, and there's nothing wrong with any of those. But at the end of the day, we acknowledge that it's Christ who is superior to all things. And then last week, you might remember uh, that I started with the illustration, okay? And Pat took us through uh, Hebrews chapter 6, and I just want to draw your attention there. Verse 19 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope, there's that word hope, that endures into the inner place behind the curtain. That's where Jesus went. He is our hope. He is our anchor. Jesus holds on to us. Now catch this. I do not hold on to Jesus. That's not the application Because if my faith depended on how tightly I hold on to Jesus, I'm going to fail miserably. And I asked you that question last week. How many of you sinned last week? And I could ask the same question again. Some of you said, yeah, I sinned. And then I said, well, how many of you sinned privately? And then, of course, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but I think that all of us would say, yeah, I have. What is our hope and comfort that the author of Hebrews is driving home? That our anchor is sure it's in me, in you? No, it's in Christ. So that even when I fail, Jesus forgives me. He's the one who is sure Hold on to that truth. So let it go from here in that filtering system in your head to your heart. And when those moments of doubt come in where you say, man, I messed up again. I'm a failure. Allow your hope and your comfort to come from Christ. The very next verse Again, application says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, have me become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is where we ended last week, okay? So, Jesus is, is our hope because Christ is our anchor, but he's also our hope because Christ is our advocate. When he became our high priest, he was our advocate Remember in Acts 14, as Stephen is being stoned, he looks up, and where's Jesus? Anyone remember who was here? Was he sitting at the right hand of the Father? No, he was standing. 
First century Jews would have recognized that a king sits, an advocate, a priest would be standing, hands outstretched in prayer, intercessing for the person who is crying out for help. There's the picture. Christ is not only our anchor, he's our advocate. And what we're going to find today is Jesus is our guarantee. Our guarantee. Hebrews 7, 1 through 10 was all about Melchizedek. I like that. Um, if some of you who weren't here, if you want to uh, listen to that later, you can talk to John. John will give you a copy of the message. Uh, Melchizedek points us to Christ as our great high priest. And there's this typology. Verse 1 of chapter 7, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. We went back to Genesis 14. Okay, Genesis 14, Psalm 110 are the only places where Melchizedek is mentioned other than the book of Hebrews. So there's all kinds of debate as to who this person is. We simply said he was a real person in the Old Testament, but he was most certainly a type of Christ, not unlike the serpent in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 21, Israel disobeys. They're bitten by snakes. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. God says, okay, because of your prayers, make this serpent, raise it up. If they look to the serpent in faith, they'll be healed. That's a type of Christ. John chapter three, just as the son of man would be lifted up, just as the serpent was. So it's a foreshadowing of a reality. Theologians call Jesus the anti-type, the already existing answer to the picture that we have in the Old Testament. It's the same picture we have in Exodus chapter 12 when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. The last plague is what? It's death to the firstborn. God says, I'll pass over. I'll pass over your door if what? If the blood of a perfect lamb is painted over the door. Where do we see that in the New Testament? Just as that lamb was a type in the Old Testament, in John chapter one, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the lamb of God, who what? Takes away the sins of the world. So like those types, Melchizedek points us to Christ as our great high priest. Today, the text is going to be Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 28. It'll be a little different. It's a long text, okay? So you're going to have to take a deep breath. We're going to get all the way through it. No problem. The title is this, The Perfection and Permanence of the New Priesthood. The perfection, I want you to listen for those words in the text as we, as we work through it, and permanence of the new priesthood. That's the basis of our hope and perseverance, by the way. I'll give you a hint. That's going to be our application at the end. Perseverance. Our hope is in the person of Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, Pat's directed us there. Verses 14 through 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us what? What does it say? Hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's that picture. Stephen's looking into the heavens. Jesus is there standing up, arms outstretched. So as we work through this text, we look for the perfection and permanence of the new priesthood. Don't look at it just academically. Look at how is the Holy Spirit applying this, just as he applied it to those that the author was writing to in the first century. Number one, the old priesthood was imperfect. It was imperfect. Look at Hebrews 7, verse 11 through 14. Now, if perfection, by the way, that Greek word there is super interesting. It just means completion, okay? Now, if perfection has been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Verse 12, for when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. What tribe did Jesus come from? The tribe of Judah, the author of Revelations. Behold, here comes the Lamb of God from the tribe of Judah, from which no one has ever served at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now listen, for someone coming out of Judaism, this would have been absolutely shocking. It would have been to pull that last log in the game of Jenga out and see everything just collapse in front of them. The author is is saying very clearly that the system that has served you and that you serve is not only imperfect, it's inadequate. We're going to find later on in a couple chapters in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 that the author will say, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can near by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. What was the purpose of the Old Testament system? It was a foreshadowing of the provision that God would make in the Messiah. The problem with the Old Testament system was that sacrifices just didn't need to be made every year. They needed to be made every single day. And so for some of us, uh, at least out of the West, I think we can hardly imagine what the altars in the temple looked like. There was just blood and guts and stench. All you got to do is just walk in one of our markets here, and you can just get a taste of what it must have been like in the temple. Why? Because God had provided a very clear picture of what sin requires to be cleansed. But it was an imperfect system. It was imperfect. It wasn't complete. The main point here 
what the old economy could not do, Christ did. The old priesthood had its place in God's plan, but it was inferior and ineffective. It only pictured perfection, which only the Messiah could accomplish. But God had another plan. Think of Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, but I will put my law within them. Now remember, the Jews had the law already. There's going to be something new coming. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The theology behind Jeremiah's prophecy was absolutely revolutionary. Why? Because a Jew would have known that God couldn't take sin and remember it no more. There was always the need for more sacrifices. Tim Keller made a very interesting observation out of 1 John 1.9. He says, in 1 John 1.9, which all of you know, Confess your sin, he's faithful to forgive you of your sin. Do you notice that little place where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins? It doesn't say he's faithful and merciful. Do you know what that's saying? The intercessory work of Jesus Christ, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, the substitution of Jesus Christ, who lived the life you should have lived, and died the death you should have died in your place has changed things forever. If we were left in the old system, in the old priesthood, we would have no hope. It's only in Christ that there's something new. The old priesthood that's described in verses 11 through 14 He says it's evident, verse 14, that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe Moses said nothing about. God is doing a new work. In verses 15 through 19, we find that the replacement is a new priesthood that is indeed perfect. Pick it up in verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. There's that typology. Who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Only a Levite could be a priest. Only a high priest could be appointed by someone through the line of Aaron. Jesus comes from a totally different line, different descendants. The basis of his appointment is based on his indestructible life. Both his active righteousness, the fact that he lived a perfect life, but also because he fulfilled the law. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever. This is right out of Psalm 110, verse 4. After the order of Melchizedek. There's the permanence. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. 
For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. There's that hope. Is the hope in the old priesthood? No, it's in the new priesthood and our high priest, the person of Christ. Psalm 110, okay? We're going to go back to that. Looked at it last week, but it's worth looking at it again. The psalmist says this, the Lord, now this is David, the Lord says to my Lord, Jehovah Yahweh says to my Lord, David's, he is pointing towards someone else other than Jehovah Yahweh. Who is it? Elohim, it's Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The picture of his kingship. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your mouth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Here it is, verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The main point here is Jesus can do what the Levitical priesthood could not do. He takes us into the presence of God and he anchors us there eternally. There's the permanence. Jesus was both perfect and permanent, eternal. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. Now again, put yourself in the place of a first century Jew. Their entire life and existence, as far as they concerned, for generations was based on this system. Now, I know for those of you who are young, you can't imagine that, that doing something different would be bothersome. But if you've lived chronologically any length of time, Floyd, right, you and me, okay, doing things differently is not comfortable. When you upset the apple cart, so to speak, it's disturbing. And we're talking about generations here. But John says... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Galatians 2.16, Paul says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be, what? Justified. Made right. Something that was given to God's people was set aside. Jeremiah says that was the plan all along. What we have now is a new promise. New hope. And that hope is found in the person of Jesus. Now that should make you excited about the Advent season to think about, wow, this is, this is amazing. Verses 20 through 28. Okay, The new priesthood is guaranteed by a new covenant. Okay, We'll unpack that word a bit, but let's read the text first. 
and it was not without an oath. Okay, this is more than just a pinky promise, okay? It was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Again, looking back to Psalm 110. For this Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The only time in the New Testament that this word guarantor is used. Very specific legal term for the role that Jesus plays as our high priest. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make what? Intercession for them. Now, just hold it right there. Put your finger right there. Who is Jesus making intercession for? Me? You? He's not done and even for those who will come to Christ. Even for the unreached that you're praying for in your neighborhood, in your community that you think there's no hope for. Jesus is praying on their behalf, according to verse 25. There's confidence there. It's not my evangelistic method. It's not how brightly my light shines. It's whether or not and when every person responds to the person of Christ, verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. For he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has made, been made perfect for how long? Forever. The new priesthood is guaranteed by a new covenant, by a new law. If you just peek back to verse 22, it says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. He is, by definition, the one who fulfills our legal obligation. That's what the word literally means, to be a guarantor. Our legal obligation before God because of our sinfulness is to be rightfully judged to take on the punishment from a just and holy God. But Jesus, as the perfect high priest, he says, no, I guarantee salvation for Pat and for Matt, for Colin, for Jasper, for me, based on nothing that they've done, nothing that I've done, but on behalf of what Christ has done in both his active and passive righteousness. That's why when we talk about these rich truths of receiving the righteousness of Christ, 
It's imputed. It's given to me. It's guaranteed because of who Christ is in his high priestly role. I don't fully understand all of the implications, but I am so thankful for it. Based on who Jesus is in the text that we read, we know that he's eternal. We know that he's the basis of our salvation. We know that he is holy and sinless, and we know that he has brought about a new covenant. By the way, if you look back into the Old Testament, how many big covenants were there? Do you remember that Old Testament survey class? What does it start with? Go ahead, don't be shy. Right, so there was, there was the covenant with Adam that God made, right? And then there was the covenant with Noah. Who comes after Noah? Abraham. And then there was Moses. And then there was David. There were these big covenants, regardless of your theological system. There's a lot of people who get really caught up into how they interpret Scripture. It's really important to, to, to see the covenants as promises, as oaths. In the ancient Near East, when an oath was made, it was a blood oath. It could not be broken. This is not just two people saying, I promise, I guarantee you that this will happen. This is, this is not, our vernacular doesn't do it justice. The idea here is that there has been an oath taken by Christ himself, and it was signed in his blood through his perfection. And so he becomes the guarantor, the legal means by which we can look at our salvation and say, it's done, it's finished. I like how John Calvin says it. Um, if you haven't read the Institutes, you're looking for another book, Hey, for 2024-25, I'd encourage you to pick up the Institutes. Uh, This is what he says. This is a quote out of it. He says, The sum comes to this, that the honor of the priesthood was competent to none but Christ, because by the sacrifice of his death, he wiped away our guilt and made satisfaction for sin. Of the great importance of this matter, we are reminded by that solemn oath which God uttered, and of which he declared he would not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You don't need to have guilt over your sin. You don't need to be fearful of your sin. Why? Because of Jesus. Because he's your high priest. He's my high priest. We're going to sing a closing song. It's entitled Look to Christ. Um, I have a closing verse and then uh, one application really quick. Jude 24 and 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, that's a great doxology. Okay, it's in the little epistle. Here's the application, okay, for Jesus being our high priest and why Jude could say through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to us today what he said. 
that because of the perfection and permanence of Jesus Christ, we need not fear our eternal security. If I had to list top three things that people wrestle with, it's whether or not they're really saved. Am I really saved? Can I lose my salvation? Because I've done a lot of things. <laughs> and if I can lose it, I think I'm going to lose it. Well, I got truth for you. If you could lose your salvation, you would absolutely lose it. And so would I. I said last week, um, someone mentioned this, that it caught him by surprise because I said, man, I love the doctrines of grace. And the older I get, the more I love them. Now, some of you think, oh, I don't know about all those theological ramifications of, of, of the doctrines of grace. Well, one of the things that people wrestle with is the fact that there is a perseverance of the saints. That a true Christian, that they will persevere in Christ if you wrestle with this, you don't understand what the reformers were saying. You certainly don't understand what John Calvin was saying because he was not saying that a true Christian can persevere in and of themselves. It's not what he was saying. He simply recognized that the perfect man who is eternal in nature, the person Jesus Christ, is the one who is the guarantor of persevering grace. And it's because he is the one who perseveres on our behalf that I can say, I will persevere, not because I'm holding on to Jesus, but according to John 10, because he is holding on to me and to you. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Jesus is indeed our high priest, and it's his perseverance and the permanence and perfection of the person of Christ that gives us hope today, this Advent season, and even into the next year.